Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Feelin' Film. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and hot on my trails, ready to haul me into podcast prison is my super agent co-host and best friend himself, Patch. I love these intros sometimes that make me feel like I'm really important. Hello, how's it going? Good. It's going It's going well, and I'm glad that you enjoyed that one. I, you know, I got to admit, writing these is one of the highlights of the week, because doing notes for your podcast episode is not always the best thing in the world. Sometimes it comes easy, sometimes... It's a challenge and in trying to articulate the specific topics you want to cover in what order, but the intro is always the most fun because it's all about puns and laughs and 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 hints at what we're going to cover. That's and hints thing, at what we're going to cover. We, yeah, yeah. yeah we as if like we're a, yeah. As if the person like a legit who is, radio show. Yeah, as if the person who is listening right now did not click on the episode play button with the words episode whatever this is two forty five two forty six. What is this actually? 245. Yeah, so as if they didn't click on the button that said episode 245, catch me if you can, and we're like teasing what the movie is. That they know what the movie is. <laughs> it's not like a mystery box. This isn't J.J. Abrams here at yeah, Film. <laughs> we should do that sometime. We should be like episode 247, question mark, and like, <laughs> dude, we should what? totally do should, that. But we should, well, okay, people that listen to this will know this, but it should be a J.J. Abrams movie. It that's should. what it should be. It yeah, should. any movie that we cover that's J.J. Abrams directed should not have a title in it. It should just be <laughs> just a graphic be... of a whole bunch of question marks, and it should say episode oh, 250. just a box. Just a box with a question mark on it. Yeah. That's all it is. Fantastic. And nothing <laughs> all at right. all to do with the movie we're talking about, though. So no. we are transitioning away from Matt Damon this week to focus on one of acting's all-time greats for a couple of episodes. Coincidentally, both Damon in last week's film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and DiCaprio in this week's film, Catch Me If You Can, are both con men who steal identities and forge checks. That was by accident, but hey, it's a pretty cool connection. <laughs> it, is a good, it is a good one, yeah. Uh, this week, there is decidedly less bludgeoning, though, so that's a positive in my opinion. Thank goodness, because <laughs> I just don't know if I could take that again. That was just surprising and almost a little awkward for me at times. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's time to roll, Patrick, so why don't you get us started with your one-word takeaway? Well, this is a movie that I hadn't seen since it actually came out back in 2002, and I had a very different reaction to it back then. I remember kind of going through it and feeling like, oh, it's Leonardo DiCaprio in yet another period piece, because that's what he's basically known for. <laughs> Also great acting. Let's not discount that. But it's got Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. And so I remember walking away from it the first time thinking oh, that was fine. And having my feeling film goggles on this time, I couldn't help but just really, really deeply enjoy it this time. Not only was my man Christopher Walken in it, and I'd forgotten about that. I also found that the movie as a whole and our main character, Frank Abagnale, was charming and that's the word that i pulled from this was just the whole movie from the opening credits all the way until the end felt it had an air of charm to it there was some suspense here and there action here and there but really what it came down to it was it was a charming drama there wasn't a lot of craziness that went on in terms of high action or 
things of that nature. It just really felt like Steven Spielberg had said, I'm going to tell this story. It's going to be inspired, which for anybody that's familiar with movies based on people or events, inspired gives a lot more liberty for my take than based on. So when I saw inspired by actual events, I was like, okay, cool. Let's get let's get liberous. That's not right. Let's get free. Let's have fun with this. And and that's what it was, Aaron. It was a really, really great experience. My wife actually stayed up and watched this movie with me, which I was really happy about. She was not excited about the two-hour, 20-minute runtime, especially when we start this thing at like 8.30. And she's like, really? Are you kidding me? And my son came in you know, periodically over the course of the first hour, so it extended that two-and-a-half-hour runtime a little bit longer. But we got to the end of the movie, and she was like, wow. And I was like, yeah. I couldn't believe it either. And I was smiling. She's like, why are you smiling? He got paid to do something that he should have gotten in trouble for. It's like, he did his time. It's cool, whatever. We'll get more into that. But the fact is, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this. I thought, watching the opening credits, I was like, this is a 1960s feel. It feels very classic. And overall, I would recommend this to anybody uh, this time around. I think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. I had a very, very similar experience with it. The runtime, I thought, was a little long for my taste. I think that there's some shaving that could have been done to maybe tighten this sucker up just a bit. But it, it was by no means a major detriment to the experience of watching the film because it was so charming. I mean, your word is perfect. The word I decided to choose was talent, and I sort of did that just to be funny based on the title of last week's episode, but... Honestly, you know, Frank is super talented and I couldn't help but be wowed at times by his intellect, his charisma, his quick decision making. I mean, he has all of these tools to be a completely successful person in the world. And yet we see him use them for other reasons or for other things and, and for reasons that obviously we're going to talk about that stem from his upbringing and his childhood and traumatic events and such. And so, you know, stories like these always tend to cause me to ask, why would someone do that? Why would someone who has these talents, quote unquote, throw them away? This is what people watching from afar want to do when they judge you. I think of famous athletes who have resorted to crime when they're making millions of dollars. And you and you wonder to yourself, like, why would this person do these things when they have all this talent that can make them be successful in a legal way? And so I, I've got that rolling around in my brain, and it makes me really want to dive into that psychology of the choices and, and why you would do these things, because you look at what Frank accomplishes, and it's an incredible, incredible story. And so it also simultaneously made me think about the fact that I feel like everyone has talents, and what we get to see in Frank that I think makes him so charming, Patrick, is how he uses them and enjoys them and finds a piece in the way that he gets to express himself through the things that he is good at doing and how we all want to do that. Right. It made me think about how we have talents and finding your talent can be a lifelong thing. And this kid finds it as a teenager 
and like, God bless him. That's amazing. <laughs> right. He found it before he was old enough to really understand how to use it and what to do with it. But he has this innate gift and it's about figuring out what you're going to do with that and how you can make that shine. And of course, ultimately, we want to see someone do that in a positive way. Um, but the cool thing is, as I mentioned, like there's no guns, there's no blood in this story. Frank is not a violent man. And I think that's why you're able to have that reaction about him being charming because he is not a criminal in the sense of he's hurting people physically. He took money from corporations and that's probably the worst of his crimes and it's a crime and it's not okay but it makes this a very unique and unconventional type of crime biopic <laughs> for us out there. It makes me think that, honestly, Patrick, I don't know if we're ever going to get anything else like this. Because for the most part, this is not how criminals <laughs> operate as peaceful as Frank Abern Gig Abagnale? I, sometimes Abag I can... Ab Abagnale, yeah. You know it's a real-life story when the name is awfully hard to say. <laughs> That's the truth right there. Yeah. We'll just call him Frank Jr. for the rest of the episode. That way it makes it easier. Frankie boy. Frankie. Frankie. Right. Okay. No. Okay. Well, listeners, here's your spoiler warning. If you have not seen Catch Me If You Can, you should make an effort to do so. It's a wonderful film that we can both tell you we heartily recommend. And now we're going to get into some of those themes and the psychology of why Frank does what he does and what it means for us, what we can what we think about when we watch the story play out. So here we go. You've been warned. All right. So it's a crazy story, Patrick. And it really seemed unlikely to me when I read the plot. And actually, like you, I had not seen this for 20 years. I watched it when it first came out. I remembered it vaguely. So I remembered, oh, yeah, Tom Hanks is chasing Leonardo DiCaprio around the world because he's forging checks or something. So or something like that's probably actually how it went in my head. But when I was reading just the synopsis before watching it this time, I was like, okay, this happened before his 19th birthday. That's insane. He successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan American World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, and a Louisiana parish prosecutor, a lawyer. And as I was mentioning, like all of his crimes are financial and, and immoral in ways, but never violent. And so... I kind of wanted to start there, and I'm glad that you had the words you did because I think it ties in so perfectly. When you say you reacted by seeing him as this charming person, was it hard for you to see Frank as a criminal? And because of that, did you ever get caught up in kind of seeing his crimes as maybe more impressive and admirable than actually damaging and illegal. Well, this is one of those things where you look at a crime of finance as subjectively saying there are no victims, especially when it's corporate finance. The only victims are those you're stealing money from, which are companies and they can always recoup because they make tons of money. It's similar to the way I was thinking about, when I was watching the big short, how it was a financial, it wasn't even a con. It was a legit financial thing that happened, but in the end it hurt lots of people. It capitalized on people's inability to pay their mortgages. And so I'm, I'm filtering it through that kind of lens. I'm also filtering it through a lens of the time period. 
And honestly, Aaron, I didn't feel anything like that. I didn't feel like he was doing anything wrong. I knew he was logically because these things are illegal, but at no point did I feel like he was taking advantage of an individual intentionally to gain some kind of selfish goal. And I think more than anything, what I pulled from at least the first half of the movie was just how Spielberg allows us to see some of the naivety of the 1960s, of the ability of someone in a suit, of having a supposedly prestigious job like a pilot can almost do anything he wants. How women were considered things to be charmed and not necessarily having any kind of brain necessarily. There were obviously some spots in the movie that I think were highlighted, but the fact is I think catch me if you can serves at least in part, whether intentional or not, a commentary on how the world saw men, the world saw those in power, how a suit could do a lot for you. From the very beginning, we see Frank Abagnale Sr. conning a woman in a suit shop to get her to rent his son a suit so that he could go in and con, not con, but get money from a bank so that he could get more money for this financial trouble that he's in. I mean, from the very beginning, we're shown how not easy, but really more how strategic it can be to use appearances and stature to get what you want and how in some ways it's either easier or it's more accessible depending on where you are on the social food chain. So I look at Frank Abagnale Sr. and Jr. as two people who saw the world as an opportunity, not really as a game to be played or a game to follow the rules by, but as a means to say, nobody's going to get hurt physically, mentally, emotionally. The only loss is going to come from these big banks that are not smart enough to recognize a con when they see them. Yeah, you know, I think that is definitely where my mind wanted to go or went for a large portion of the movie. I think the movie's kind of bouncy tone and just its treatment, the way the camera watches Frank Jr. And I mean, for the, you know, so Spielberg's sake, like, He's filming a 19 year old kid like this is a kid who kid is he's wide eyed like he's understanding and learning about the world as he goes. So you used a great word naivety. There is a sense of that to that. He's not harming people with the knowledge that he's harming people. He's not trying to hurt other people. Now, I said immoral earlier because he definitely also uses his status as he progresses to seduce women. And, you know, we see some one night stands that come because he's seduced women and stolen information from them. And so there is definitely not all about not hurting people uh, in a sense. But what I loved about what you just said and the suit thing, you're so right. And that stuck out to me as well about how status was such an important factor. Like depending on what you were wearing the bank manager example, when he walks into the first bank and gets completely turned down and the teller calls over the manager to talk to him and he's like, uh-uh, right? And that's the first place he goes back to intentionally 
because we see very early on that he has a chip on his shoulder, his very first con of his own being that awesome, fun, introductory kind of moment where he gets bullied at his new school, and he's like, all right, screw it. I'm going to pretend to be the teacher, and I'm going to embarrass you right back, which was brilliant, right? Again, showing that ingenuity, that quick decision-making. But he, I think from that moment forward, you see right away, like, he is all about sticking it to the people that he feels are too stupid or too rude and deserve to get punished for that. And so he goes back to that bank. And that same exact bank manager comes up to him and treats him like royalty because he's a pilot. Like, oh, what do we have to do to get your money, right? What do we have to do to serve you? And it's disgusting (laughs) when you are watching it from our perspective and realizing, you know, that's really the way it is in the world today. Uh, And and it also brought up bias. There was a, a moment where one of the tellers said something about how, you know, we can't cash a check for you because we don't know you. And I was like, wow. So it's really not about any unbiased standards necessarily. It's about the fact that they just don't know you. And since they don't know you, they're not going to allow you to be in the club in this sense, right? And and gift you their money that they have. And the power at the time, specifically of banks, I mean, it, they still have power now, but it was huge. And so it makes sense why he ends up going this route. But I guess to kind of get back to where I was going with this and my initial question to you is like, I had a hard time seeing him as a criminal quite a bit. I had so much fun and the way in which he pulls one over constantly on Carl as he's, you know, elusing, elusing, eluding capture as well as the fun way in which we see him going through his forgery processes. It's all filmed with that Spielbergian like bounciness. It's like cheery. It's got an upbeat, you know, score behind it. It's cute. It's like, Oh, look at this. How fun it is. He's stealing millions of dollars. Ha <laughs> ha. And so it, I think it draws you into that feeling, which I believe is intentional because then it makes me eventually reflect on the fact that I was so easily drawn into that. And how do I want to feel about this guy? And so I, I, I wanted to set us up with that because I do think that that's something that catch me if you can does in a way that I haven't seen a lot of movies do. It makes me question the whole movie long. Like I'm battling with my thoughts and feelings about this guy and what I want to happen to him. Well, I think it's interesting, Aaron, because I won't say that the, intent is to wrestle with that but i think it's a nice byproduct because even when we look at hanratty tom hanks's character he wants to get this guy and he's going to stop at nothing but the guys around him don't really take it seriously they're like look okay he's forging checks okay he's 19 years old i mean there's so many little great scenes with hanks and his his guys where they are completely oblivious and don't even care what's going on And I think that that in and of itself is sort of a representation of kind of how an audience or a certain audience would look at this is like, look, it's just fun. I mean, what's he who's he hurting? Right. Whereas handwriting like, no, he's in, uh, you know, 1.5 million at one point. Like he tells his he tells um, Abingdale's mom. She's she. It's this great scene I remember from the trailer where she goes, how much is he has he taken? I'll cut a check and goes one point five million dollars, ma'am. 
and and just leaves, right? And I think that seeing Hanratty around the other guys in fraud, particularly his two little, I call them henchmen, that are always hungry. One of them always is always hungry. It's very reflective of, I think, the two types of people that are looking at what Frank Jr. is doing, where you're kind of in awe, but you're also like, he is doing something wrong. Let's not forget that. He is stealing. It is a basic law that he is breaking. And I think it's really fun to have that tension. And I think Spielberg is doing that intentionally. I'll go ahead and say that because it's fun to wrestle with that. It never made the movie any worse to watch. It actually made it better because the whole time I'm like, I kind of want to be with you. I kind of want to be hanging right. out with you and watching how you cut, how you make these checks, how you take these Pan Am planes and just lightly peel off these decals. I mean, there's so many great moments where we get to see his handiwork. And, and there's I no wanna... Google, Patrick. That's the thing. Like, he's there's not Googling no Google, how to right. do this. He is no YouTube. <laughs> figuring it out. He just right. innately, he is seeing a process in his head and it's coming to him how he can deconstruct that. Right. And it's about asking those questions. I mean, he is a, if he were anybody real that we could pick out in the movie, he's a reporter. He's always looking for the scoop and always finding out more. But he's his own Google is what he is. I mean, he is the, the 60s version of Google, you know, just gleaning information and spitting it out in a way that's very, very fun. I want to ask a couple of fun questions before we get on to the more themey type stuff. So what is your favorite impersonation of Frank's? It's a tie between. There's the... like three, and you're gonna pick two. Of course you would. Okay. Well, I'm Go gonna ahead. say there's one, one, one and one. Don't, don't, don't you test me, boy. I'm gonna get you. No, I think it's. You mentioned it. The uh, the teacher. I thought that was a fantastic representation, and it wasn't just what he did. It's how Frank Senior reacted to it. They're leaving the principal's office, and his mom is just completely distraught. She's like, I "Can't believe you did this." And then you almost. They didn't do this, but I just – I saw their reaction, and in my mind, I'm like, they just gave each other, you know, a 1960s fist bump, essentially, you know, laughing at what happened. Like, that's my boy. Ship off the old block. That's why you're junior. That's why you have my namesake. It's that one, and it's the first encounter with uh, with Hanratty. And I think if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick the the initial one in the in the classroom because I think that, like you said, completely sets the tone for understanding how innovative Frank Jr., will be as the movie goes on well i would pick the exact same too so fine you know i love the other ones and i think that they each have their own level of genius applied to them but for me those are the two as well one because it's the first and it's just so brilliant the way he in which he's able to turn the tide on a bully and and i also I really enjoyed watching his dad very clearly be proud of him for doing that and his mom obviously being upset, which is, I think, natural in some cases. You know, depending on what the thing in general is, this could happen in lots of people's lives. And then, like you said, the one with Carl is just so immediately on your toes, like there's no room for error there at all. He walks in the door. And, you know, he immediately comes up with an idea and tries it. And frankly, <laughs> frankly, he uh, doesn't actually know whether it's going to work out. I mean, when he hands him that wallet and we later see that the wallet is actually full of nothing but business cards, 
that could have he could have immediately been caught, right? But he is smart enough to know I just got to keep him talking. I got to keep him distracted. I got to move his attention and move his eyes. So as soon as I hand him this, I've got to keep him going. And just the way in which he kind of instinctually comes to all of this, goes over to the window, sees somebody outside, immediately is able to use that for part of his con. It's brilliant. It's just absolutely completely mesmerizing to me how that could work. And you feel for Carl because you're like, dude, there, you, there's no way you could have known. Like you, he was very convincing in that moment as well. And I just, I thought that was really good. Um, he's also a great escape artist. So did you have a favorite escape moment of his? And I guess that one could kind of be tied into the Carl Hanratty first meeting scene. So we'd probably both pick that as at least a tie, but anything else? The great toilet escape. I mean, that in my mind is gross. Yes, it's very gross, but it's something I'd never seen and probably will never see again. First of all, that bathroom's too big for an airplane bathroom. I just, you know, the top down, I looked at Christian and I said, no way he can move around that much. If that actually happened, I haven't read his book. That makes it even doubly brilliant because I wouldn't have ever thought to go through the fuselage of a plane via the toilet. And you know what? I guess he was having a Shawshank moment. You know, he was going to go through maybe yards of crap as opposed to miles of crap to get to safety. But I also liked, and this kind of ties back into my one word takeaway, the charm that he used having the stewardesses flank him going through the airport. Because going through, like when he's stuck in Miami and he has to kind of get out of Miami, again, it goes back to the fact that nobody's paying attention to him because he's flooded with all these stewardesses and he's seen as just another pilot who is being bombarded by these stewardesses, part of this weird you know, fake program that he's invited them to. My wife did ask a good question. She said, where did they get all the stewardess uniforms? And I'm like, look, it's Frank Abagnale. He can do whatever he wants. Let's just leave it at that. But it's a legit question. So I think the toilet incident was probably tops with that being kind of a distant two for me or not so distant two. Yeah. That's on that. Yeah. Number two, when you're talking number about two. the toilet, that's, that's definitely what he was going <laughs> That was the number anyway, one. That was my number one. In number and one number two, toilet. both in that toilet. Um, <laughs> plenty of it. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's realistic. I, I'm assuming since this is a biopic that it must probably have happened. I don't know. Carl Hanratty, I know for a fact is not an actual person. He's a composite of many different people that were involved in catching Frank, but uh, including the real life friendships that he founded through this, but it wasn't just one, one guy, like all boiled into this one guy. Um, but you know, I, I thought of when he went through the toilet, I was like, well, he spent all of this time learning about planes in order to become a pilot. So he has the knowledge. If, if anybody's going to know that you could go through the toilet to get out of an airplane, it would be someone that flies airplanes or is an airplane engineer. And Frank studied all of those things, you know, whether it was ingeniously through getting a pilot to talk to him in an interview and, and tell him the, the truth and all of these things or through books. But like, if anybody was going to know that that was possible, it was Frank. And so it made sense. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it because that is the kind of moment that can take you out of a movie. If, if you allow it to, because you can be like, yeah, right. <laughs> like, like that's not possible, but I'm able to go to enough places in my head and, and justify and, and make it feel like it's probably likely it could be true. 
We should look it up after this. All right, last fun one kind of thing is who's more talented since we did this last week, Frank Abagnale Jr. or Tom Ripley? I'm going by preference, and I'm going to go with Frank because I think that I just don't like Tom Ripley at all as a character. I think that's that not grows. the question. The question is not I know who it's you not, like. I'm, just ta- I'm telling you. The my question bias. is who is the better con artist, Patrick? I'm going to say I'm going to say Frank, and I think it's because he knew how to use the world around him. Both of them prepped for sure. But I look at Frank and I see him using the things that he has at his disposal. When he gets a new job, he watches the one thing that I think we all do to get more educated about the things that we don't know a lot about. He watches television. He watches Perry Mason. And what does he do? The very next scene, we see him impersonating a Perry Mason scene. And I think it's hilarious. I also think it's just pretty brilliant, too, because the fact is the world that people know about the professions that they're not involved in in that time period without things like Google or maybe even with Google these days are only what they see written about or on a television. We watch The Good Doctor, my wife and I do, and every week I want to call our friend Marcin, who is a pediatric surgeon, and say, I wish you watched this show. I need you to tell me if this is accurate because it feels very real. And so when you watch Perry Mason, I would imagine in the 60s, because you're not in a courtroom every day, You're going to think, hey, that's probably real. And so for me, I think him using the world around him, being in these different places and being able to think on his feet pretty quickly. Of course, Tom Ripley did that, too. But I think Frank did it with more flamboyance. I think he did it with more panache and more charm. And it made it feel a lot more genuine to me. It made it feel like it was something that I could actually I would probably be more convinced by frank's cons than i would by tom's that's a good way to put it and i think it's unquestionably frank so i agree wholeheartedly i just made you think about it the right way but Thank yes <laughs> yes it Tom can't just gross. be because can't just be because he's nice but yes it is absolutely <laughs> frank and i think his versatility and part go. of that versatility plays into that charmingness and his charisma in a way that Tom does not have. And what we see with Tom is we see a character who has to fumble through quite a few events in his story in which he has to react to them and maybe overreacts or doesn't have himself set up in a way in which he can react smartly and has to then do something on the fly that maybe he wasn't prepared for. Whereas we see Frank Abagnale as a character who is always one step ahead. And when we think he's getting caught, he has already planned out the escape scenario or he's able to do those things in a way that it just doesn't feel as bumbling as it did with Tom Ripley to me. Uh, But I do, I do ultimately agree with you. I think that it's the personality is such a huge part of it that he's able to manipulate people with him, with his smile and his intelligence and all of these things that he already just naturally has. Tom Ripley is not like that. Tom Ripley doesn't have that natural intelligence about him. Yes, he's quick-witted. Yes, he has some forgery and impersonation-type skills, but he doesn't have the genius-type intellect that Frank Abagnale has that allows him to take in information and then pump that back out into a persona ripley 
gains information, but really has to rely on the way he manipulates one close relationship in order to, to be successful with what he wants to do. So yeah, I, I think they're different and I, I definitely would lean toward Abagnale in that one. All right. So this is a big question that I was thinking about the whole movie motivations. So anytime we're, we're talking about a criminal and especially a criminal in the tone that Spielberg is going for, as we just discussed with this film as not making it seem like it's such a terrible thing that we're trying to catch him for doing. What do you feel like his motivations are for both starting his con in the first place, like getting into this situation with the Pan Am pilot, and then also continuing them? Because even at one point in the film, Frank is specifically telling his father that he wants to quit. Like he's expressing a desire to stop. It's actually one of the more powerful scenes. And I, I don't really, I didn't really write down a connecting point, but it's one that I sort of gravitated toward and might've called a connecting point. It just, it was one I liked a lot, but it was a powerful moment where his dad's like, no, don't stop. You're good at this. And I was like, dude, come on. Like, don't, what are you doing? But like, there's that moment where he is clearly ready to be done, but yet he doesn't stop. He keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going through several pushes through several of these last ditch attempts until the very end of the film. And we get our like happy ending or whatever. But I just wondered, like, what do you see as the motivating factor for this guy in committing these crimes? There's definitely a gradual shift. I think it bleeds back and forth into these different motivations. It's starts out for my take. It starts out with him being angry that his parents are divorcing. I mean, they were a solid foundation for him. And so he runs away. And those initial steps for him, I think, are ways to prove that he can be on his own. He's smart enough to do this. He can live in the world. He's got checks. And we find out, as you mentioned earlier, we find out that he fails. And I like that. And I like the fact that he doesn't just get away with stuff from the very beginning. Like he goes from bank to bank to bank and is not able to get a check cashed. And so he has to get innovative. Well, I think as he innovates and as he figures out that he can get away with certain things through those voiceover letters, we start to realize that his cons are a means to an end. Hey, I'm going to get my dad out of hock. Not necessarily, but I'm going to get him to a place where I can bring my parents together and their divorce can be nullified. They can get back together and it shows his ignorance, right? It shows his inability to understand. And to an extent, Frank senior is not writing him back saying, wait, you don't understand this. We're done. We have divorced and she has married another person. And so I think when he finds that out, then it bleeds into a, series of cons where he's just trying to fill an empty hole because he was motivated by allowing his parents to come back together. And now it's really about making sure that he stays fed through adventure, not necessarily like he's Indiana Jones, but honestly, Aaron, I think that he's asking the question, what's the point of living? And if I can't be motivated by my parents reconciling, if I can't be motivated by, you know, I've, I've already solved the problem of being able to do this on my own. I can do that. I apparently can't 
solve the issue with my parents getting back together. And you alluded to that diner conversation, which I think is really powerful because Frank Sr., it's almost like I don't remember him actually saying, don't stop. I think he just is quiet. And Frank Jr. is like, no, tell me to stop and I'll stop. And no, his dad says, and I quote, you can't stop. Okay. Is what he but says. I, and I think I, I guess when I heard that, I, re- I heard it differently. I heard not him endorsing, but him saying, you're in too deep now. This is something that you just can't escape. So maybe that's a, and, and that changes the motivation a little bit. But the end result, Aaron, is that at that point, he has been jettisoned by everyone. And there's a really interesting conversation that Hanratty has with him, one of the first Christmas Eves that he connects with them. And he's trying to get under Hanratty's skin by saying, you know, what are you doing working on Christmas Eve? Do you not have anybody to go home to? And towards the end of the conversation, Hanratty says something along the lines of, so you're calling me because you got nobody, right? And then he hangs up the phone suddenly. To me, those moments told me that he's adrift because he does not have any motivation to be connected to anyone. He has no connection to his dad necessarily. After that conversation, he has no motivation to see his parents reconcile because he knows that won't happen. He doesn't know what to do. And so it's all he knows at this point. So I think he kind of migrates to a, I'm going to do this to prove a point. I'm going to do this to get my parents back together to now I'm going to do this because I don't know what else to do. I've known this life for however many months and it's all I know. I'm so into it. I'm in it so deep that I don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. I so think I think all, it's motivation change. Yeah. I think all of those things are definitely true. And especially, you know, to me it was pretty powerful watching that opening because I had forgotten all about it. I'd forgotten that all of this gets started because he's running away because his parents say they're going to get divorced and he doesn't want to deal with that. He doesn't want to have to face that. And the fact that throughout the movie, as he continues to meet with his dad, he is sending letters to him and trying to convince him, like, let's get mom. Dude, that was another, like, I guess maybe kind of connecting point like moment is when he tells his dad, he's like, let's all go to Hawaii, get mom. It'll be fine. Let's go to Hawaii. Like, He's been on this con now for however many years, months, doing all of these different things, living along around the world and and accumulating all of this money. But Patrick, like in his heart of hearts, what he wants to do is go take his mom and dad and be a family. And that to him has gotten so warped because you're right. Like he, it's not, it would be the same if he was working at McDonald's is my point. He still wants the ultimate goal is to get his parents back together. And now he has this money, money makes everything easier. And he's hoping that he can essentially buy his way into a life that allows his mom to then want to come back to his dad. Because I think he feels like it's his dad losing all of the money and his dad putting them in this position where they had to move and they were in trouble with the government and the IRS that if he can rectify that situation by making things comfortable again for the family then everything will be fine and he can get them back together here's the interesting thing is i never heard once him saying i'll settle the debt with the irs and maybe that was intentionally vague but we see that first time that he connects with his dad at that really nice restaurant he doesn't say here's a check get your debts clear with the irs no he gives him a freaking car and his dad 
responds appropriately. I took the train here. I'm going to take it home. How would it look if a guy who's basically being hunted down by the government is rolling around in a Cadillac? Right. He's right. Mm -hmm. Frank Jr. is missing the whole entire point. And I think that says a lot about his youth. I think it says a lot about what a college, a pre-college kid is thinking about. His world is very small. His world is all about his relationship with his parents, which is incredibly noble. And I think it's a testament to Spielberg who puts that in front of us. Now, whether or not this is how it takes place in real life, like if the real Frank Abagnale dealt with this, I think it's a great plot device. Because for me, it wasn't that his parents were getting divorced. I mean, it was that, but it was really kind of accented by the fact that he had to choose. And in that moment when he's running away and he's being told by the lawyer, it's easy, just write a name down. No, it's not. It's not. He is as close to his dad as he is to his mom. And that one moment where he sees them dancing and he hears that story told by his dad that he's heard so many times, it's still like a comfortable blanket to him. It's like, look, that's familiar to me. And over the course of those several months and stealing all that money and getting into a life that completely satisfies his flesh, completely satisfies that that id in his world, he has no connection. That's the irony of everything. He is connected to so many different people doing these three big cons. And at the same time, he's only connected to a handful of people. And those people are the ones that he can't get close enough to, which I think is really, really interesting to watch his journey through that and when to get close to people and the thing that he's doing, pushing them away. Yeah. And that, well, and the other one, the other thing in the person that he has to push away is the other reason that I think he is continuing his con uh, through a portion of the film is once he gets into this situation with Brenda, this nurse, when he's playing the doctor, where it starts off as this cutesy little romance and ultimately becomes him asking for her hand in marriage <laughs> awkwardly after he tells her father, <laughs> can you get me into the bar exam and her dad's like no no ask me the real question which for me was really weird patrick because i watched this the night after i had watched my new 4k version of apocalypse now that arrived so seeing martin sheen in apocalypse now versus martin sheen in this was quite the difference let me tell you there's just a very wide gap in those performances but uh yeah her dad was hilarious in this and the way that frank kind of operates in this had me really questioning what his motivation in that relationship was because i think part of the motivation for continuing the cons was he it's like the conversation we had last week about my one word takeaway was snowball and how once you have a white lie you have to keep piling that lie and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and harder to maintain and i i wonder honestly if whether or not he actually loves brenda he says he does at a time, but I struggle with feeling like she is ever more important to him than maintaining the con or his ultimate goals of reuniting with his father and his mother and getting them back together. I feel like he's a young, naive kid who hasn't ever been in a relationship, which is the truth, and it's like a first serious relationship. And here he is getting married at a young age. It's just, you know, made a lot more complicated because he's on the run from 
the FBI because he's got millions of dollars in fraudulent money. But when we get to that ending scene with her, especially where he just throws out suitcases of money and he's like, you'll be fine. I got to go. To me, there's nothing there that says, like, I loved you. I, I really want to be with you. And I need to figure out a way in which to do that. He's pretty carefully and, and easily just letting her go, in my opinion. And so I think that for me, part of his motivation for the cons is keeping up that appearance because I think he falls into this situation where in order to get what he wants out of this lawyer angle, he's kind of got to marry the daughter. And I don't think he dislikes her, but I don't see love there. I just wondered what you felt about their relationship as well. I think it there's a there's a point where I think he feels sorry for her and he finds sympathy when she tells him about the abortion and how her parents essentially disowned her they kicked her out of the house and I think the kid in him wants to help and there is a false sense of genuine love so that scene that you're talking about where he's packing up the money oh my gosh that was cracking me up just how willy-nilly he was just pulling down suitcases full of cash I think he cared about her, Aaron, but I don't think he had enough history with her, obviously not enough honesty with her to really call that a genuine relationship. I think it was the closest that he got to a romantic relationship and a one that was driven by affection. Because if we look at the other girls in his life, the Jennifer Garners, who I would call the Sydney Bristow of the 60s in this case, because she's awesome like that, but none of the girls that he connects with are girls that he wants to start a relationship with. And when he looks at Brenda with her brace face cuteness, he doesn't see someone who he needs to con initially. He doesn't see her as a chess piece to win this next game. He genuinely likes her. And I think honestly, it's because I don't know how old Amy Adams is in this movie, but she's a kid just like him. And he's got puppy love. He gets the whole braces thing. And he tells her that honest story about having braces when he was a kid and how it felt weird to have them off. Where And she says she's you know, constantly licking her teeth. And those moments, those little honest moments from like one awkward teenager to another, I think allowed him to feel connected to her, which is different from like the Jennifer Garner character or these flight attendants that he connects with. Because these are adults, and I think that's what we forget sometimes is maybe it's because Leonardo DiCaprio is not a teenager like at this point. Maybe he is. I don't know. But I don't ever see him as a young person. Even in Titanic, I didn't see him as someone younger than someone in his 20s, even though he probably was playing that a younger person. So when he comes out to meet Brenda, he looks at her as someone who is – in his mind, his equal, not strategically, but just as a person. So hearing that story, I think, motivates him to get her reconnected with her family. But there's there's a great benefit from that. Her dad's a lawyer. Hey, that sounds like something fun I can do. Let me become a lawyer. And so he does, gets in his her dad's good graces. And I think through that, he feels genuinely like he cares for her. So that scene where he is constantly telling her the instructions and having her repeat it. I think he wants that relationship to continue. I think he knows it's futile, 
because when he gets to Miami and he sees her, he's like, okay, that's done. I guess that was the last opportunity for me to feel like I could have anything genuine. If I'm going to have to do anything, it's going to be to come clean at some point. If I'm going to have an authentic life, that's not driven by lies. Even as much as I can care deeply about someone, I don't think they could genuinely care that deeply about me back because I can never give them that full, vulnerable, honest me of who I am. Which he doesn't even know. Who exactly, he right. Yeah, honestly, I mean, is at this point. He's kind he doesn't of, have you, it, yeah. You lose that when you lie for a living. Right. Um, well, Frank's foil in the film comes in the form of FBI agent Carl Hanratty, played by our beloved Tom Hanks. And he chases him around the world. It's really fun to see this whole thing go down. And, you know, Carl loves his job. That's one of the things that he says in that first conversation with Frank. Frank's like, or maybe it's the second one. I, whatever number it was, Frank tells him, he's like, why can't you just stop chasing me? He's like, did you just stop? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. He like calls him and he's like, yo, FBI, look, can, this is getting old. Can we just like, can we stop? Can I just be, can you just let me go? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, kudos for like trying you know good good on you you at least gave it the the old attempt and carl's like uh no i like my job and i enjoy this right he wants to do this he he has fun in the chase as well it's something that satisfies him in the same way that partially like exercising that talent that abignail has satisfies him and carl's a really good detective i think he utilizes all of these clues and the information he knows about how checks move and he's hot on his tail quite a bit of the film like right there about to catch him uh i wonder you know how do you did you respond to this maybe different than if we were just following a criminal the, the film i feel like really plays not quite 50 50 but it definitely focuses on carl's perspective a lot more than other movies might for characters that don't come into a ton of contact with each other. So I just wondered what you thought about how that adds to the story, getting to see that and specifically about their relationship and just kind of what you think about their relationship. Because for me, I know that they essentially in real life have this friendship and we'll talk about the ending and how that sort of plays into the ending here in a bit but in general the conversations that they have on the phone and your point earlier about how there's one specifically where they intentionally are they're both framed as being alone and they call that out to each other and carl tells him something about how his wife has divorced him or left him and so he doesn't have anybody and there's this the bond that they have they, they sort of it's one of those, like, all we have is each other. You know, I have, my life is trying to get rid of you and get away from you. And your life is trying to catch me. It's it's like a sort of a, a Joker and Batman kind of feeling to it in, in a much nicer way. <laughs> in a Spielberg, you know, <laughs> happy PG-13 way. But, you know, that's kind of what it feels like. It's like they almost need each other because they're so locked into their work and their lives that without each other, there's nobody else that understands them. And specifically for Frank, Carl is, we just, like you just said, he can't be honest with anybody else. He doesn't have to worry about that with Carl because Carl is 
know it, learning the truth. And Carl is going to find the truth and is, and wants to find the truth. And these other people don't necessarily, they're, they're okay with whatever Frank presents to them if it suits their whims. And so they have this unique relationship. And so getting to see it play out from both of their perspectives was, I think, real insightful for me because it allowed the moments when they do come together, though very brief, to be a lot more impactful. And, you know, I, lo I know you love Tom Hanks. So how did this work for you, the structure and their relationship? They're definitely foils for one another, and Spielberg really portrays them as needing one another, giving both of their roles purpose. I don't think if we just saw Frank Jr. doing his stuff, I think it would be entertaining, but without the chase, I don't think it really matters. And that's going to tie into a little bit of what my connecting point is later on. But I think what Hanratty brings to the table in the form of the great Tom Hanks is he provides almost a priestly confessional opportunity for uh for, for for frank jr we look at those conversations <laughs> coincidentally every christmas eve I, I think that's i don't think that's true obviously but i love that spielberg puts it on probably what's considered one of the most intimate nights of the year where you're supposed to be with family and here are these two individuals connecting seemingly over the course of several christmas eves like it seems almost poignant for them to talk to each other every Christmas Eve. So watching their relationship develop over the course of those several years, what we see is, I think, an opportunity for Frank Jr. to, while he doesn't do this directly, create a space of honesty, a, a space of vulnerability for that relationship. I think he sees Carl as someone he can trust because he's only met him once because he doesn't have history with him. And I think hearing that Carl has a broken family comes from a broken family as part of one, maybe is the cause of one. We don't know necessarily. I think gives him a little bit of common ground, a little bit of a place where he can say, okay, he understands where I'm coming from. I can talk to him about that. And there's this great, great scene just before the end of the film where Frank and Carl meet up in France and <laughs> it's a great reaction by, by Leo where Carl comes in and he sees all this, all these checks being printed. And what does Frank do? Excuse me. Yeah. What does Frank do? He doesn't put his hands up. He goes, Carl, and he stops the presses and he throws these checks up in the air. Like he's incredibly happy to see him. To me, that's one of the most genuine moments from this character, because I think that the chase has given him reason to feel valued. And over the course of that scene, what we find out is that he's trying to Frank's trying to con be convinced or that Carl has all these policemen outside. And there's this kind of chess game of like, I don't believe you. You got to believe me. And it comes down to him on a handshake saying, I'm going to trust you on this. And what we see is them walking out. And for us as an audience, for that one little moment, it looks like, ah, Carl's gotten the best of him. And Frank even looks at him and says, real good, Frank, or real good, Carl. And then we see Carl make good on his word to get those 20 police officers. And so I think it's, 
it's that kind of relationship where Frank Jr., even in the relationship that they're in, as weird as it is in these kind of black hat, white hat kind of relationship, there's a sense of trust that Frank Jr. values that Carl can bring to the table. Yeah, and in that scene specifically, I think he is relieved. I think Frank is relieved that this person told him the truth. I think he wanted, obviously he wanted it to be, he wanted, he didn't want to, he didn't necessarily want to get caught maybe, but in a sense, you almost feel like what was more important to him was this relationship with this person and this person being honest to him and whatever comes, at least Carl told him the truth and he knows this person is genuine. This person is upstanding, right? And I thought that he has a lot of integrity. And I just thought that that the way that Leo looks in that scene, facial expression wise, tells me that that mattered to him and it was a positive for him. And I really enjoyed their relationship. I do. And I think it's interesting because of this idea of them going from enemies to friends and which takes us to the ending and in prison. And this will, this will get to the question that your wife came up with, you know, Frank assists Carl and the FBI by helping them catch other forgers. Eventually he's offered this opportunity in order to come out of prison early. If he will aid them. And this brought up several things in my head too. So first of all, it's interesting to me that the government will let you rot when they don't need you. But if they think that they can use you for their benefit, they will offer you an opportunity to get out earlier because you have a skill that they can use, which in this case, I think we're obviously maybe apt to be happy for Frank because we have come to, he's going to grow on us. We see him as charming. We kind of don't think he's a violent person, obviously. So we want the best of him. But when you expand that into real world scenario, real world life for millions of people who go to prison, it's kind of shady in some ways there. And so that was one thing that I had on my mind while this was going down Another one was, you know, whether or not Frank and his ability to do what he did had become this passion, because we see him at the end, I think, really leaning into his ability to help with this work and find others. And so... Is it the same, right, to exercise your passion of your own free will versus under force, <laughs> under requirement? And then the other thing that was on my mind the whole time of this was actually a really positive one, Patrick. And that was just, you know, I can look at it cynically from that first perspective of the government using someone to get a benefit for themselves. But then you could look at it optimistically and think about it from the angle of this is this could be what redemption looks like. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that the ultimate goal? And while maybe this isn't something that's offered to every prisoner everywhere, maybe it's this should be 
what we want to see, this kind of direction for people who are nonviolent criminals, to give them something and a chance for a life in the future, right? And is there a redemption for Frank that occurs in this ending? And, and this is real. Like, this really happened, right? Frank goes on to assist the FBI in this work. He gets his sentence essentially commuted, cut down, whatever the wording is. He doesn't have to serve at all. He does this for years. He ends up becoming a financial securities expert who gives advice to people on how to protect themselves and not get their identities stolen and things of that nature. And he's a multimillionaire in real life, like legitimately from legal means, which is fascinating and really shows you that this is not just something he wanted to use for wrong that he ends up using these same gifts for good in the end and for, for successful legal means. So anyway, what do you think about this? And like, how did you respond to her when she asked you that question about it as well? I said, that's awesome. I love that he did that. No, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a tough question to answer because what you're saying, there's a lot of conflict there. What I came away with was a number of things. First, he was sentenced and his sentence was jail time. And I'm going purely off of the film. I'm not talking about the real Abagnale at all. So if I'm wrong about anything in the real world, whatever, he was never given any kind of, you're going to pay the money back. No, he was going to serve jail time and he was given a choice. Aaron. He was given a choice to either stay in prison or help the FBI. And when he asked, how long am I going to be here? I love Carl's reaction. As long as we need you. Okay. Makes sense to me. He could always choose to go back to prison because he's technically an indentured servant at this point until his sentence is done. And so for my money, I'm thinking if I'm offering this guy a choice, not making him work for us, but offering him a choice at any point, if he says, I want to go back to prison, that's his choice. And so in that regard i think he had the freedom to be able to make that choice the other thing with regard to potentially thinking about this in terms of like should the government do this more often i think there's always the opportunity but i think it's based on history i think it's based on the kind of criminals that you put in the prison system if you're going to have someone who is a pedophile who can help you catch more pedophiles that's going to be a little bit more of a thought process because we're thinking that's pretty egregious. We're not talking about just taking money from people or stealing identities. Those are bad, and I'm not going to like put the laws or things on the, the table and say all of them are equal. But when it comes to the type of crime you've committed, there's a benefit of experience, and that benefit can contribute to lowering a crime rate or allowing for more people to be safeguarded because of your experience. I think it's a case by case basis. I don't think it should be a holistic, you know what? We should give every criminal a second chance who's had history with their crimes. Because the fact is Frank Jr. was not a person who was trying to intentionally hurt people. He was just selfish. He wasn't going out there and showing people how to commit crimes. He wasn't creating a, like a mob or a, crime ring with a number of people saying, all right, here's your 
fake driver's license and here's your secret identity. It was him. Also, he was a kid. And I think in that regard, when you're looking at this guy who was charged as an adult, in some ways I felt like the FBI was giving him a second chance to live his life because look, man, you go to prison when you're a kid? If you're there for 15, 20 years, that's a huge chunk of your life. How do you start over from that? And so in a lot of ways, I really felt like this was a redemptive response by the government. It was a win-win for both. Ultimately, it came down to Frank choosing it or not. But I like the fact that we don't see the government saying, you know what, you've got this talent and we're going to use you or else you're going to rot in prison. No, he was going to rot in prison because that was what the crime told him he was going to do. That was his sentence. This became more of an opportunity after the fact. And the fact that he had this relationship with Carl, I think, enhanced that because he already had a relationship developed that one that was based on trust, very small trust in the beginnings of trust, but also one that I think put him in a position where he could succeed. And, you know, the real Frank went on to work for the FBI for 30 plus years. I don't think he was an indentured servant that long. I think at some point he said, you know what? This is the life I need. I need to take what I've learned and I need to give it to other people. And as you grow up and you realize that the world needs more altruism, I think that was part of who we saw Frank become throughout the, you know, I'm bleeding over into the real person, but I think that it was really motivated by the fact that he was given a second chance, partially because he was a kid, but I think partially because he had something to offer. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. And I think that the friendship is in the film at least i don't know about in real life but definitely in the film the friendship is that draw and his ability his as the progressive nature of their relationship has gone to trust in carl and to feel valued from carl i think it's something he wanted to be around it's a person he wanted to spend his time with and a person that he genuinely wanted to please and wanted to do good for someone else other than himself. I don't think it was, I definitely don't get the impression that it's just a matter in this movie, the way that Frank acts of, okay, it's prison or I have to do this job. He comes in there with a purpose. He comes in there happy, wanting to be a part and contribute to that team. And I just, get that feeling that it is because of Carl. It's not because of the opportunity. It's because of Carl. If Carl was not the person that was offering this, I think he runs away if possible. You know what I mean? That the relationship matters here. And it's one of the best parts of what makes this movie great to watch and a lot of fun. Well, last but not least, connecting point time. And I don't have one. Again, I, a couple scenes that I thought were really great and sweet, but I didn't have anything that just jumped out at me like majorly in the connecting point way, but you do. So why don't you share what that was? The last scene of the film, just before he comes back to the office, it was over that weekend where it starts out with Frank really kind of feeling a little nervous about the weekend coming up. I think we've just experienced his first week on the job. He has purpose. And now he's about to kind of be jettisoned. I don't know where he lives, if he lives in a safe house or if he's under house. I don't know what it is. But what we see is Carl packing up his desk for the weekend, feeling kind of distracted. And he's saying, look, I, you know, I wish I could do something for you, but I'm meeting my daughter in Chicago and uh, I'll see you on Monday. And I think Leo plays this part really well in this moment because 
it feels a lot like Brooks from Shawshank. Like, what do I do? I he even hints at the fact that he said, "Well, can I come into work with you tomorrow?" He's like, "It's the weekend, man. You don't we don't work on the weekends." And so he's got these three days to kind of think about what he is going to be doing. And we, in that moment, before knowing what actually happens, we're thinking, "Oh my gosh, he's now on his own. He's probably going to escape." And of course, Spielberg does some great little camera work here, and we see him walk by a clothing store and sees that pilot uniform in the store window. And the next thing we see is him walking through this big tunnel of one of the, uh, one of the airports and we see Carl behind him. And what Carl says to him, I think is so important at the end of the conversation. He says, look around, there's nobody here. It's just me nobody's chasing you anymore. And Carl, in receiving that trust from Frank, he extends that trust to him, and he, I think in that moment he believes that he's going to come back to work on Monday. And I think it's due to the fact that Frank realizes that the purpose that he was having fulfilled of being chased by Carl and by the FBI because that no longer existed, I think it allowed him to rethink and say, well, what is my purpose? And it took a few days, took a few hours longer on Monday, but eventually he makes his way back into the office and he starts that relationship. He renews that relationship with Carl and with you know the rest of the team. And the, the film ends with that great shot of them at a desk working together. And you see a little bit of excitement in Frank Jr. as he's saying, yeah, this wasn't a typical one. Yeah, he uses this and this that. And you see Carl just going, man, this guy's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that he's back. Camera pans back, and of course it cuts to the, the here's what happened. But honestly, Aaron, I think, as you kind of hinted, if it hadn't been for Carl being there in that moment, and if it hadn't been for him saying, look around, nobody's chasing you, I think Frank would have left. I think he would have just said, nope, it's not worth it. I don't have any friends. But Carl showed up. And Carl didn't bring him back. Carl said, essentially, you're a big boy. You can make your own choice. Monday morning, we see him again. And the film ends in a way that feels like, okay, Frank has chosen a new life. He's chosen to not just accept this life, but embrace it and say, this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to be Frank Avignale Jr. This is who I am. And I'm going to live the rest of my life being that guy and nobody else. And I love the moment in the terminal because in on any other day with any other person, I think Frank would have made a different choice. But because of Carl, because he was there, and because of the thing that he said, I think it gave Frank new purpose, at least to think about and then to eventually kind of embrace that next morning, that next Monday morning. Yeah, 100% agree. I think that the truth coming out, too, about Carl's family was so impactful for him. Because Carl tells him there before that great line about uh, no one's chasing you, he's talking to him and he says, he call, Frank calls him on it. And he's like, you said your daughter was four. And he's like, yeah, she was four when my wife left. Now she's 15. And it's like that 
frank moment of, oh, I didn't know everything about your life. I assumed some things and holy cow, you do have something very similar to me in a sense. And, he, and it's funny because he says, I don't understand. And one of my favorite lines of the movie is the response from Carl, where he says, sure you do. Sometimes it's easier living the lie. And it's like, wow, okay, so you really are this two sides of the same coin, you know, the the good and the bad that are using the same feelings for different means in different ways and, and stuff. And so, yeah, I love how they come together in the end. It's it's a really sweet ending, and it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's cool because it's real. <laughs> it's not just a bow tie on a movie for movie's sake. It's actually what happened which makes this even more of a unique and really impressively special story it sure does well that wraps up another episode of feeling film uh this week is chock full of new content so keep your podcatchers active as we send more stuff your way we have a new episode of ff plus this week and aaron and Coles will talk spoiler free about bill and ted face the music excellent i thought that was a terrible one Sorry. We'll also be bringing you this month's donor pick in the form of Rear Window, as well as some fun bonus content uh, discussing the 2017 zombie comedy One Cut of the Dead. You don't want to miss that. And following that, we will be bookending our week with our second LDC-led film, Shutter Island, and with that, bringing on Zoheb Ali from the Midnight Double Feature podcast to discuss that one. It's going to be a fun seven days for sure. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.